In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. If you live in a city of any size, you live with more noise than you realize. I'm not talking about airplanes or police sirens, though we deal with those too. I'm talking about the kind of things that you've probably gotten good at tuning out. The cars going by, the hum of the streetlights, summer construction and winter snow plows, the patio down the block, the kids in the park, the neighbors' music, the lawnmower or the weed whacker a couple of backyards over, your own dishwasher or washing machine, and hundreds of other things that are always the background to our daily existence to the point where you notice them when they're gone. We're learning right now about what that kind of noise exposure does to us in the long term. And there are already some startling results. And thanks to that month or so back in April of 2020, when so many of these things vanished, we have some really interesting data points to compare. And not just on land, but in the water, where with almost all traffic vanishing, something very strange began to happen to creatures like whales who use sound to communicate. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Bojan First is a writer and photographer based in St. John's, Newfoundland. He explored the world of noise for the walrus. Hey, Bojan. Hello. I want to start by asking you what seems like a basic question, but I realize I'd never tried to define it either. What is noise? What's a good way to define what we are talking about here? You know, it changes through time. Uh, what we consider noise today is uh, Matt Jordan, who is a researcher at uh, Pennsylvania State University, uh, defines it as unwanted sound. So give me some examples of what that might entail in our everyday lives. Yeah, so it can be anything. It can be, you know, um, kids playing soccer under your window that you don't want to hear. It can be loud neighbors. It can be traffic. It can be, um, you know, the construction um, noise from uh, from roadworks, literally anything. Right now in St. John's, uh, I'm not sure. It's a pretty quiet room, but you may hear a foghorn because it's very foggy. Right. And I guess uh, this goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. One of the people you talked to had done a little bit of a history of uh, famous people complaining about noise. <laughs> That's correct. And uh, we've been complaining about noise for a very long time, uh, especially people who made their living 
thinking about things. Uh, so you have everybody from Blaise Pascal to uh, Thomas Carlyle, the Scottish polemicist, complaining about noise. And one of the anecdotes um, Matt Jordan shares in that piece he wrote is about Thomas Carlyle paying a fortune to remodel his house in um London, I believe, to actually uh, cut out all sound uh, from the interior. Uh, It didn't quite work because it never does. But uh, yeah, people would go to quite extremes to get rid of the unwanted sound. What kinds of noise would they be complaining about back then? Just uh, people in the street? Maybe, uh, I guess you weren't revving your motors, you're revving your horses. Maybe, um, you know, the clippity-clop of the horses on the paving stones, yes. the wooden wheels without rubber. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, I, You know, maybe hawkers out on the street. <laughs> right. So, I mean, all that is to establish that this is something uh, humans have been living with as long as we've been living in cities, at the very least. And there have been all sorts of ways to try to tune it out or complain to get it, get it shut down or whatever it is. But now, tell me about what one scientist that you spoke to is calling the anthropause. What is that? It's a really interesting concept. Over the last century, maybe I think it's fair to say since the Industrial Revolution in some ways, the noise that humans introduced to, into the environment has grown dramatically. And this is not only noise that we introduced on land, like the traffic and construction and all of these things that we can think of when we live in a city. But we have also introduced noise uh, in our oceans from a whole range of activities that we undertake on the ocean and in the ocean. So you can think about here about shipping um, as a long-term continuous noise, um, but also things like seismic testing for oil and gas exploration, mm. or we use um, sonars to detect all sorts of things from fishing to you know military purposes. Right. So we have introduced tremendous amount of noise in the environment. And that noise has an impact on other species, not just us. So when the pandemic hit, and well, we are still in the pandemic, but when the lockdowns were initiated, much of that activity stopped. And for the very first time, in a very long time, scientists were able to observe natural environment, especially oceans, for a prolonged period of time in a condition that was much, much quieter. One of the scientists that I talked to who works with a Sound Research Collective in Alaska said that by some of the calculations they did, the oceans were half as quiet as they normally would be during that period of lockdowns because the shipping slowed down, cruise ships were completely gone and so on. Dr. Amanda Bates from University of Victoria in Victoria, BC, uh, worked with a team that called that, that pause in human activity that dramatically reduced the noise in natural environments, anthropos. When we look at that pause, what happened that, that wouldn't have happened otherwise? Oh, so this is fascinating. First of all, for a very long time, right into the 50s, 60s, even 70s, we thought of all oceans as 
silent. Mm-hmm. Oceans naturally are anything but silent. In fact, many animals that live in the oceans, both mammals like dolphins and whales, but also fish, use sound extensively for all sorts of purposes. Now, they tend often to use sound beyond our range of hearing, which is human range of hearing is very limited. And when you think about it, of course they use sound. The sound travels much faster and much further under the ocean than it does uh, in the air. And they use it for all sorts of purposes, from communication to echolocation, to coordinating feeding, mating habits, all sorts of things. So one of the fascinating stories that Dr. Matthews from uh, Alaska shared with me, so they were able to study humpback whales for this long period of time that the ocean was much quieter than it normally would be. So what I noticed is that normally the most common sound that they would record humpback whales make about 75% of the time was this particular sound that they called whoop. And what it basically means, they think, is, hi, I'm a humpback whale and I'm over here. Hmm. When the oceans got quiet, what humpback whales started to do is they reduced the amount of time they used that particular calling sound and they dramatically expanded the frequency of other sounds that they would normally make. We have no clue what the rest of that complex communication entails, Hmm. but we now know that should the oceans be quiet from our noise, they would sound very different because the other species that make their home in the ocean would probably use a very different way of communicating than what they're doing now, because what they're doing now is exactly the same thing we do when we walk into a party. You walk in, it gets very loud. You're not trying to have a deep conversation with anybody. You raise Mm -hmm. your voice to change the frequency you talk at, um, and you try to have a very basic conversation. All of that is fascinating. And I want to turn to how that applies to us. Because Mm. to your point, we just live in this noisy world now and we've adapted to it. So before we get into some of the research on uh, what noise does to us, let's start with a little primer on how we measure noise um, with decibels. So just give us sort of the base level sets of uh, what some of the typical noise we encounter in our day might be. Sure. So we measure noise in a unit called decibel. So a whisper is about 30 decibels. A normal conversation, like the one we are having now, is about 60. Your leaf blower is 85. A rock concert or a jet engine is about 120, 130. And these are measured at certain distance from the source, right? Right. And anything above 85 If humans are exposed to that noise for a prolonged period of time, it will damage our hearing. One interesting, complete digression to this story is that a colicky baby Mm -hmm. can hit 130 decibels with its cry. And humans are apparently primed for that particular noise, the crying baby, and the aura, psychological and physiological response to it is absolutely astonishing, and it takes milliseconds for us to kick in. 
It's so funny. I can feel that right now, just remembering those cries. I can feel the, <laughs> the anxiety in me when they hit. <laughs> Forgive me if I'm mispronouncing this. Uh, you spoke to a researcher named Tor Oyamo who looked to study kind of what this prolonged exposure can do to the rest of us. Can you explain a little bit about that research and what we've learned? Yeah, so Dr. Oyamo is a scientist at Metropolitan University of Toronto. He's a geographic information systems specialist. So um, he is a very contemporary, modern map maker, if you will. He can make these very detailed maps of urban areas. So he worked with Toronto Health Department, and he was able to create noise maps of Toronto and then overlay historical health data over those maps. And in that way, they were able to assess the long-term impact of noise on the health of humans living within those environments. Mm. So what they found out is that once you hit 53 decibels of at a sort of a sustained level that people are exposed to, for every additional 10 decibels that you are exposed to, your chances of heart disease, of stroke, diabetes all go up. Some of them go up quite dramatically. So ischemic heart disease, I think it goes up by 8%, I believe, for every 10 additional decibels. So that was in itself very interesting. But what it also showed is that there is a social justice component to this because the richer neighborhoods tend to be quieter and the poorer neighborhoods tend to be significantly louder. Mm -hmm. So people who are already experiencing health impacts because of their social determinants of health, their income, their employment, on top of that, also experience uh, additional health risks right. because they live in neighborhoods that are noisier than better off neighborhoods. So given all that, and we've already talked about noise complaints, which I think is typically how uh, somebody would react to specific uh, episodes of unwanted noise. What about overall uh, governance of a general noise level in a neighborhood or a city or anywhere? Do we have any regulations as to like what is acceptable? I, I know other than, you know, don't overpay for a home near the airport. <laughs> Correct. So it's really interesting. In Canada, the noise is largely regulated by municipal bylaws, which are very poorly enforced for all sorts of reasons. Um, in other places, that's not necessarily the case. Europe is at the forefront of this. So European Union has a very specific noise di directive, and each member country is under the obligation to create noise maps, to monitor noise, and to report on what they're trying to do to limit the noise exposure of its citizens. Mm. Paris, for example, has an organization that is dedicated specifically to that task, uh, and they have made some great strides in reducing the noise levels. In Germany, it is uh, actually unlawful to be noisy between, I believe, 10 p.m. and 7 a.m. Uh, and that would include, like, you can't do laundry or run a dryer during that period of time, right? So there are rules around 
what kind of noise is allowed at certain periods of time. In Canada and in North America, that is left to local governments that are ill-equipped to monitor the noise um, and force those bylaws or even have them in the first place. And you touched on this in your piece, but I have to say, when we started talking about local bylaws and noise ordinances, the first thing I thought of uh, was the convoy in Ottawa and some of the testimony that we heard from people who lived in the area of just how it impacted their lives, not even necessarily the protesters themselves, just the noise. Just the noise. And there is there is the testimony of an Ottawa citizen who is visually impaired. So the way she navigates the world as an independent citizen is much more acoustic than it would be for you or me. Um, so she relies heavily on sound to get around. For her, during those four weeks, it was absolutely impossible to get around. Um, she has experienced a range of health symptoms, and so have many other uh, many other people. The problem, of course, is that that protest was so long and the noise exposure was so long that it impacted sleeping patterns and a whole bunch of other physiological processes in people. Uh, and Dr. Oyama actually refers to it as a as sort of basically a terror tactic. And if when you get into reading all this research around noise and how it's used, uh, law enforcement and intelligence services have now for some time been using noise uh, for both crowd control as um, acoustic weapons, right. um, but also in, in torture, because we the, the physiological response we have to prolonged exposure to noise is, is really profound. Is this why, as our cities and urban landscapes get noisier and noisier, we've seen such a rise of like noise-canceling headphones. You mentioned the gentleman hundreds of years ago who redid his entire house. <laughs> this is just a few hundred bucks to Apple, right? Right, exactly. And here you go. You have your own tailored little acoustic cocoon, right? Dr. Jordan from Penn State actually has this great history. I mean, the first one of those devices, and actually if you look at those old commercials from the 80s, was Walkman, right? For the first time, you could have your own acoustic bubble that you live in because mm-hmm. the, the sound that you choose is the sound of good life and you should have control over it, right? So it's an it's, it's an interesting approach and absolutely a great marketing technique and selling point to get people to hear only what they want to hear. But of course, there are, there are downsides to that as well. Such as? That's where this whole notion of ethics of sound and noise come in, right? Decisions that we make, who we are going to hear, what we are going to cut out, that has impact on what, how we engage with the world. It has impact on what kind of a citizen we are potentially. You know, if you can cut out the the voices of those you don't want to hear, uh, who are maybe less fortunate or maybe those who don't agree with you mm. and live in a sound cocoon of your own making, well, that maybe is not the greatest thing in the world. And maybe we shouldn't be telling people to shut up, but we should be better at listening to others and um, engaging in conversations, right? And that goes, that, that's an interesting argument when you extend it, not just to us as humans and, and other humans and our neighbors, but also extend it to other species as the species that's the most responsible for 
the noise that we introduced into the world. What is our responsibility to other species whose lives we are interrupting and making heck of a lot more difficult, right? Well, that's the last thing I want to ask and to bring it full circle. How can we think about noise differently? I mean, we started this conversation with you defining it as unwanted sound. Um, that can encompass a lot. And should we only be listening to things we want, actively want to hear? Mm. I think the answer to that second question, should we be listening to only things we want to hear, is no. We should hear things that make us uncomfortable. Now, that doesn't mean that we should subject ourselves to physiologically and psychologically damaging sounds. Uh, we should absolutely try to minimize those. But there is something to be said for being able to listen to others that we don't necessarily agree with, right? In terms of what we can do to reduce harmful noise, and, and we are talking here about noise that is a health problem, right? right. Uh, that's a really interesting question. So we actually do have a range of options. There is no one single thing you can do to reduce noise in the city, for example. As Dr. Oyama said, it's it's million little things. So the orientation of bedrooms in the new buildings, the um, kind of tires that uh, we install on vehicles um, can actually have significant impact on noise that cars make. Bios that regulate exhaust tailpipes. Bios that um, regulate what kind of noise can be made at what time of the day. So there's a, there's a lot of options that we have, but these are policy options and they also need policy enforcement instruments. And how do we actually do all that? It becomes very complicated very quickly because there is so much that we could do. Situation is um, just as complicated on the oceans there is no international body that regulates ocean noise. There are now starting to be individual ports and municipalities that are starting to pass rules around the noise as well as the emissions. Hmm. We do know that if ships slow down, they get significantly less noisy. Interestingly enough, that has all sorts of other repercussions. For example, it drastically reduces collisions with whales and other mammals, but it also improves air quality and the emissions from those ships. But there is a cost. Your shipping is slower. Switching to different kind of propulsion systems that maybe use some combination of fuel and wind and electric power uh, would also further dramatically reduce the noise in the oceans. Again, um, we have a long way to go. Oh, yeah, and thank you for this. A fascinating conversation and a fascinating thing to think about as we walk around outside. Thank you so much for having me. And yeah, just listen to the world around you. It's actually more fascinating than we give it credit. Boyan first, writing in The Walrus. That was The Big Story. For more, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca and you can find us, as always, on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. If you want to suggest a topic, hit us up at hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca or just call and talk into the phone for a minute 416-935-5935. Joseph Fish is the lead producer of The Big Story. Robin Simon and Ali Graham are producers. This week, Ryan Clark, Mark Angley, and Robin Edgar handled our sound design. 
Samandara is our research assistant. And I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Thanks for listening. We'll talk on Monday.